Welcome to AMD on the Hill, your opportunity to keep up with the latest policy and advocacy news from the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. AMD on the Hill is produced in association with AMD on the Go and available on the same podcast channel. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. And now here is your host for AMD on the Hill, Alex Bardock. Hello and welcome to AMDA on the Hill, your periodic update for AMDA's public policy and advocacy activities. Uh, my name is Alex Bardock and I'm the Director of Public Policy uh, and Advocacy here at AMDA. Um, just as usual, I wanted to quickly update you on everything that's been uh, going on in the world of, of uh, policy over the last several months. Uh, obviously to start with uh, is we are now uh, entering yet another new phase uh, of now what we, I guess we can term COVID uh, recovery. And there have been some important updates, uh, especially over the last uh, week or so. Uh, first of all, I wanted to alert you to um, an interim final rule that was issued by CMS, mostly dealing with uh, vaccinations and how we're going to uh, <clears throat> vaccinate folks and how we're going to deal with um, getting back to quote unquote normal moving forward. Uh, first of all, I want to delineate what this means. There have been a lot of questions over the last year. There's been a lot of um, documents that have come from CMS and CDC, and a lot of folks have had questions about, you know, how enforceable are some of these documents. Um, so uh, for the most part over the last year, what we have seen are um, guidance coming from both CMS and CDC. Uh, guidance does not, um, in effect, have a force of law. It is uh, essentially what it is. It's, it's guidance for uh, all states and all facilities as to what they should be doing. It's certainly prudent to follow guidance, but it doesn't, you can't um, survey uh, on that uh, and it doesn't carry the same enforcement mechanisms. In certain states and even certain facilities, um, in some instances, disregarded, either disregarded the guidance or changed it significantly uh, or, you know, did what they wanted. And that created certainly a lot of confusion around the country as to how folks were dealing with, um, uh, with COVID. What this is, is an interim final rule, and there have been several of these, uh, and when they're issued, they carry a much greater enforcement mechanism. Uh, surveys can be done on them, um, and uh, this is something that all uh, states and localities must follow. Uh, they can uh, change it as long as it's um, you know, not more stringent than what the federal policy says. So um, facilities will have to follow uh, what the interim uh, final rule does. Now, the reason it's called an interim final rule, of course, is because uh, normal rulemaking would have a proposed rule followed by a comment period uh, that would uh, then result in a final rule. Uh, because CMS has to operate on a much uh, quicker basis, they issue what are known as interim final rules. Uh, I wanted to go into that level of detail a little bit only because we have gotten questions about, um, you know, what the difference is between these rules and some of these guidelines. The interim final rule does have a comment period. Uh, AMDA is uh, going to comment on it along with, I'm sure, many other stakeholders who will do so as well. Uh, but the final rule, it does go into effect in the dates that are specified uh, in the rule. And so let's go into a little bit of what the rule actually uh, talks about. Um, and a lot of what it, it enforces is something that already been in guidance or had been in the works. Um, it deals with reporting mechanisms. Uh, most facilities have been reporting their vaccination rates to NHSN. Um, it now creates uh, a, a new F tag, actually. Um, so as you can see, again, enforcement mechanisms. 
uh, for reporting these. Uh, and um, there are um, some rules that I'm not going to go into here, but there are rules and they're very specific about who to count in the vaccination rate and who to not count in the vaccination rate. It's, it deals with, you know, who's the, who has worked in the facility the week prior. It details what that uh, means. And there are some questions, I'm sure, about that um, uh, moving forward. Uh, there are also um, uh, questions that have come up in terms of the rule uh, about um, vaccinating those that have not been vaccinated. And, you know, what we heard on a, on a phone call that talked about um, the rule is that facilities will be asked to make, I guess, as much effort as possible to vaccinate everybody in the facility. Of course, vaccination is not required. Uh, we cannot ask uh, specifically about why somebody's not vaccinated uh, or force them to do so. But what did, we did hear from CMS is that you do have to make an effort to um, uh, inform people about uh, vaccinations and uh, all of the data that's out there. And uh, you know, and what they told us is that surveyors will actually be asking staff and residents about efforts that have been undertaken to uh, educate themselves uh, about vaccinations. They will want to see literature, they'll want to do interviews and things like that. So this is something to keep in mind as facilities are um, uh, trying to uh, move forward. Um, you know, according to CMS, one of the questions that was asked is, you know, let's say you offered the vaccine, um, you know, one day and, and, and somebody said no, you know, do you do that the next day? Uh, probably not. So I think there's some leadway in terms of how you do so. There's no question that CMS is looking at um, whether or not you're putting all the educational efforts uh, into this and are trying, uh, I guess, as hard as you can uh, to vaccinate folks. Um, AMDA is uh, in its uh, work group are, are looking at this rule obviously very closely. We will be issuing our guidelines um, to augment what CMS has done and continue to answer these lingering questions. Uh, no doubt, I think one of the difficulties here is uh, we've heard from the federal government that, you know, something like a vaccine passport or whatever term you want to use is not something they're going to do. Um, and so how do you continue to resume activities, resume visitation when you don't know the vaccination status? And in fact, according to CMS, one of the things that was stated was, you know, if you don't know for certain the vaccination status, you kind of have to assume that they're not vaccinated, treat them as, as they're not. I think that, uh, again, probably brings a whole host of questions. Um, and some challenges. But, you know, as we enter the new phase, in particular with the recent announcement from CDC about masking, it brings into question how to safely reopen, how to talk to families about all of this. Uh, what about testing? Is that going to continue in case there are uh, cases uh, um, in facilities? Um, so these, this is something that has been continued uh, discussion. Um, I think the states and localities will certainly make their own decisions as well. Uh, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us um, and let us know. Um, you know, things with COVID as they have been over the last year uh, change almost on a daily, if not hourly basis. And so um, I think it's important to keep yourself updated and, and certainly follow along uh, with our website. Uh and now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. 
We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. A couple of other things that um, have come up or, or things we've been working on both on Capitol Hill uh, and with uh, CMS um, deals with telehealth. So obviously the public health emergency is still in place. It's actually officially in place until July. Uh, we've got an indication from the administration that it should be last, that it should last the end of the year, uh, but officially it's supposed to end in, ju in July. And given the pivot sort of uh, from CDC that we've seen on, on things like masking, you know, is it possible that uh, it would be lifted before that uh, or at the end of July? Sure, it is, um, but we have heard that it isn't likely. We don't know the chances uh, that it won't. So, you know, as the public health emergency continues, things like telehealth waivers are still in effect. So uh, you are, you know, now there are virtually no restrictions on telehealth. Once the public health emergency ends, however, we do know that uh, CMS uh, in its final rule last year restricted uh, the use of telehealth for uh, nursing facilities, subsequent care codes to once every 14 days. And as soon as the public health emergency ends, that will be the rule. And, uh, you know, so this is something we are continuously working on. Uh, we're working on Capitol Hill and actually on a separate uh, legislation that would create a, a, a separate payment system for a telehealth service, kind of a, a more in the value-based arena. Uh, and we want to continue to see the expansion of telehealth and the use of telehealth uh, in these settings um, and so that patients can be seen on time, they can be seen in person, and they can be get the best care they can. Um, and so that's one of those advocacy positions that we have taken. Um, one of the other things I want to touch on uh, really quickly is that our... Um, behavioral health work group, um, they have been looking at uh, another area, of course, dealing with COVID, but on a slightly different angle. And that is, you know, obviously over the last year, um, everybody working in nursing facilities uh, has experienced trauma. Uh, it's unprecedented what had occurred. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, they probably didn't know what tomorrow would look like or whether there are any would be an end to any of this anytime soon. And that's taken a mental toll um, on a lot of the staff. Um, obviously, we know that there's been a lot of staff have left and there's been great staff turnover. Um, but we want to, uh, our behavioral health work group is looking at, you know, how to deal uh, with some of these issues moving forward and how to uh, work with staff and, um, you know, with, with the nurses and the nursing home staff, but also, you know, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the medical directors that have been all a part of this. Obviously, it's taken a, a, a toll. Uh, so they will be looking at this issue and issuing some, some guidance, some thoughts, uh, some perspectives uh, on, on how, to, how to deal with that. And, um, you know, hopefully that will be a, a useful tool. Um, overall, I would say that, you know, where we are right now is, you know, obviously, as we enter more of the reflection 
stage, although it's by no means over, but you know, a lot of folks are starting to look at you know, what, where we've been and all of that. Uh, I think what we want to make sure is nursing homes have been in the spotlight, obviously, this year for um, the good, bad, and the ugly, as I've said before. And from an advocacy perspective, we want to make sure that the, um, what we've gained in terms of our ability to be an influence at the table is something that is maintained. It is not simply a blimp, uh, and in, in some people's cases, a negative blimp. Uh, on the radar, but th that, that we can come together and look at the lessons of the last year uh, and really provide uh, lasting and positive uh, change for the patients and residents in these facilities. Uh, I think everybody's resolve over this last year who've worked in this space has shown tremendously uh, about the type of people, the type of people they work with. Uh, and so hopefully, um, you know, all of you have been fantastic in helping us with our advocacy efforts. And hopefully we can uh, garnish that energy and um, continue to advocate on, on local, state, and federal levels uh, for continued improvement um, for patients and residents in post-acute long-term care facilities. Certainly, we want to see um, lasting change for the better and that, you know, we don't start deal, dealing with things uh, when they reach a, a crisis. And, you know, one of the things that we're hoping to do is to uh, make an impact to where, you know, if there is a crisis, that it doesn't have such an impact uh, as it did over um, uh, this last year. So with that, um, I think those are the, the, the main topics uh, I wanted to cover today. There are, of course, other things that are going on. I hope you're keeping uh, in touch with or um, reading our policy newsletters that contain updates on, on payment issues and value-based medicine that hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, there's also actually, I should mention, a proposed rule for uh, skilled nursing facilities that updates the payment rates, uh, establishes some changes in the quality reporting mechanism, including COVID um, and, uh, you know, things like staffing um, and other major issues that, that are still at the, at the forefront. Um, so, as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me. Please uh, stay engaged uh, and stay in touch with us. And again, I want to thank all of you for your continued um, advocacy and your continued uh, engagement on, on everything that we do. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.